0: Good day. You're tuned into the 32nd edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it is Tuesday, the 9th of March, and I'm your host, Stefan Christophe in Montreal. Uh, we come at you every Tuesday uh, with a new podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, for the start of the program this week, I wanted to play a discussion I had with Bianca Mugeni. Uh, who is working with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. That is a project that is aiming to explore um, the distance that exists between the image of Canadian policy abroad and the reality. So looking at that gap, and within that gap, there's a lot of injustice, uh, whether it's connected to Canadian corporations, mining companies, for example, um, you know, There's a lot of tracking of environmental injustice and also human rights abuses tied to Canadian mining corporations. Also, the fact that Canada is allowing uh, arms corporations, so companies that make weapons in Canada for war, uh, to export those arms to governments like that, um, the one in Saudi Arabia, which right now is um, engaged in a full-on war in Yemen. Uh, that has created one of the most dangerous and devastating humanitarian um, crises in the world. Um, So that's ongoing. Um, So this uh, discussion is part of a series that I've been doing to highlight that distance between the articulated sort of conception of Canadian policy as liberal, as justice-oriented, and the reality regarding Canadian companies, but also regarding Canadian government policy— uh, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute really got going last spring when they campaigned against uh, Canada's push to have a seat at the UN Security Council, a campaign that was successful. Uh, so I've been doing this interview series in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, and this is the last in that series of discussions, and it's with uh, Bianca Mugeni, who sort of details and gives some body, gives some context to the work of the canadian foreign policy institute so here's our conversation
1: the institute is um basically it's a it's an organization that uh started up in may of 2020 uh, um around the uh the vote um around the security council and it sort of started up as a campaign um and uh it was a time when people were kind of finally paying attention to Canadian foreign policy in the media. And, uh, you know, a, a number of us, a number of activists understood that this would be an incredible time to challenge unjust uh, Canadian foreign policy and have the media talk about it, pay attention to it, uh, and to organize around it. And um, as, as you know, Canada lost their bid for United Nations Security Council seat. Um, and there was just a tremendous amount of support, uh, for the, for the work, um, that the Canadian foreign policy Institute was doing, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, uh, activism and people sort of approaching us to, to do events and to continue doing this. And it just, it's just sort of seemed like a good idea to keep going, uh, Mm -hmm. as an organization, as an Institute. And it's something that, um... I had been thinking about with other activists is a real gap that existed, uh, on, on, on sort of the landscape in terms of Mm -hmm. institutions. Um, so basically what our mandate is, is to inform people, uh, living in Canada about our diplomatic, um, aid intelligence and military policies abroad. And Mm. we're also doing what we can to oppose the racism that's embedded in Canadian foreign policy, Um, and we also monitor Canada's corporate activities, uh, international activities. And one of the obstacles that we face Mm -hmm. is that, you know, there's a lot of mythology around um, Canadian foreign policy, right? Like Mm where Canadians understand um, much, you know, much of the world, um, despite our our actions, often believe that our country is this sort of benevolent force internationally but the facts often do suggest otherwise. And so part of what our role is, is to essentially try and bridge the gap between the perception and the reality of Canada's Mm. role in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think that, you know, there obviously there was quite a lot of coverage of this vote at the UN in terms of who would be on the Security Council. Uh, That would be last spring. Um, But just for people who maybe didn't follow that, um, could you just break down a bit why this campaign took place, and maybe highlight just like even one or a couple of the issues that that you were trying to push forward through the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute to as to why this campaign to challenge Canada's um, attempts to have a seat, why why that was important for you?
1: Yeah. So okay. So this uh, this campaign started up. Um, around the time that Trudeau was really sort of amping up the campaign um, to get a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Um, I don't think that, uh, I don't think anybody really knew whether or not this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, We tried to get a seat uh, under, uh, you know, previous governments and, and failed. So this was a kind of a second attempt at that. Mm-hmm. And um, and our feeling was that we we didn't want the international community to reward Canada for bad mm-hmm. behavior with this sort of seat on the Security Council, mm-hmm. and so we we decided to launch a campaign that was you know sort of provocative insofar as we were saying vote no, like vote yeah. against yeah. Canada's bid yeah. for this United Nations Security Council seat, mm-hmm. and the rationale we gave for that was a whole host of reasons, right? So Mm -hmm. we said Canada has refused to join 122 countries represented at the 2017 UN conference to negotiate a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons. That was one example of like, we really do not deserve this this seat. Um, uh, NATO, right? Canada being just quite an aggressive proponent of this nuclear uh, armed alliance. We also felt as though we really needed a much more independent foreign policy, right? Um, We don't Mm -hmm. need another seat on the UN Security Council that's essentially just sort of echoing um, at that time, Trump's foreign policy, but US foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and one of those examples would be backing reactionary forces in the Americas, right? Like Venezuela, one of the very first events that we did as as an institute was actually Mm -hmm. Um, to oppose uh, Mm -hmm. Canada's role in propping up sort of um, efforts to essentially unseat uh, recognized Mm -hmm. governments, democratically elected governments in places like Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we hosted the foreign minister who talked about Canada's interference. Uh, Really uh, an event unprecedented, um, I think, in Canadian foreign policy history where a foreign minister says, stop it. You know, okay. stop intervening. Stop Stop trying to overthrow our government. Yeah. Um, and, you know, seeing the, sort of the same things, the same dynamics in Haiti and in Honduras. Um, another issue that we highlighted in that I think actually got a lot of traction was the issue of Palestine, right? And Canada just, you know, siding with Israel on on almost every issue of, of, of importance. Um, and not long before that vote, um, then uh uh our then foreign minister um christia freeland i said essentially said that you know if we won this seat we would quote unquote act as an asset for israel on the council and so that was another thing that we highlighted um we highlighted other things including mining mining injustice. we know that canadian mining companies are responsible for countless ecological and human rights abuses around the globe we highlighted um the slowness to, to, to sign the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and also the violations uh, of this declaration through things like um, sending militarized police into uh, un- un- unceded Witsuwet'en uh, territory to push through a pipeline. Um, and, and climate, actually, on that note was another thing that we were highlighting. We were like, look, um, this is actually a foreign policy issue, right? Like mm-hmm. we, uh, when you look at how much we're emitting, you look at the tar sands, for instance, and the growth of the tar sands, and you know the, the, the manner in which we're one of the, the world's highest emitting, uh, highest per capita emitters, and and who is this at the expense of? Right, it's at the expense of impoverished nations who've contributed very, very little to the climate, to the climate crisis, um, but really bear the brunt of its impact. So these are a number of the issues that we brought up and said, this is why we do not deserve a seat on the United Nations Security Council. And what we did was we wrote up a statement and we asked um, prominent sort of Canadian artists, activists, um, filmmakers, scholars, et cetera, to sign on to it. Um, And uh, people like, you know, David Suzuki signed on, uh, and, and And on and on uh, and and that was kind of the starting the starting place for uh, a campaign um, and the Toronto Star agreed to publish it and then we turned it into a petition. There were nearly four thousand people that signed that and uh, and then when Canada lost the uh, security council vote, we then quickly turned that around and said, well, what we need is a fundamental reassessment of Canadian foreign policy. And that was kind of, that was our second campaign was to say, well, this is what our foreign policy should look like. Um, we believe that people living in Canada actually do want, uh, do want a foreign policy that um, pushes for peace and human rights on the, on the global stage. This is who we understand ourselves to be as Canadians. Um, and, and so I think that that is actually a position that would be, that is quite supported. I think that there's just tremendous knowledge gaps in, uh, in terms of the, the role of, 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 of Canada on the, on the international stage. But of course, uh, that ignorance and, uh, and, and silence has, has a death toll.
0: That ignorance and silence has a death toll. Um, that's, um, such, um, pointed and, meaningful way to put the critique forward. So so thanks for underlining it that way. Um, just wanted to also uh, rewind a little bit to January of this year. Uh, and I found it really meaningful that the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute really pushed to highlight the international treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Um, and as I learned more about that, I also, um, really through your work, uh, was learning also its activist history and how social movements in different parts of the world had been pushing for an international ban on on nuclear weapons. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Canada didn't support that treaty.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, no, this is true. Um, so we held that event uh, with Noam Chomsky, the one that you're... Uh, that you're referring to on this, the sort of landmark day in the struggle to abolish nuclear weapons. Um, The treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons finally entered into force. Um, There was a 50th ratification. Um, And so it was a day to celebrate, but it was also really an awkward moment for Canada. It was, you know, because we didn't sign the treaty. Um, And so part of why we were holding this event was to say, Yes, we want to celebrate, but also we're not okay hmm. with this. No? celebrate
0: um, the treaty and critique the fact exactly that. Canada... Celebrate
1: is- the fact that, like it's it's coming into force for those countries that have signed on to it. Um, uh, but and this treaty basically, what it does is it um, it makes nuclear weapons illegal um, under international law, right? So it prohibits nations from developing them, testing hmm. them, using it, using them, threatening to use them. Um, but simply put, Canada has not only not only not signed it but was actually hostile towards the initiative, right? So Trudeau voted against holding the conference um, to even just negotiate the treaty and then failed to turn up to, you know, several meetings, um, uh, you know, Canada voted against 130 uh, countries in December that reaffirmed support for this treaty uh, against the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So. And all of this, and this is part of the problem with our Canadian foreign policy, is that we talk out of one mouth, we'll talk out of one side of our mouth, but it's just like it's the actions and the words, are there's such a disconnect, right? Because we do, you know, the government does all of this while asserting that they're committed to achieving a world free of nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and that really seems to be um, what the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute is trying to work so hard to do, is to fill that information space that exists between the sort of popular perception of what Canadian foreign policy is and actually what is going on on the ground. I mean you mentioned the support for the coup in Bolivia you know which uh, I think you know in the elections that preceded um, the um, people who had supported the coup which uh, expressed overt racism towards Indigenous people within Bolivia Uh, and also pushed militarization and privatization, that government was ousted in a vote, uh, and the party um, movement towards socialism was re-elected. Canada's position was really striking in in regards to that, um, and and a number of other issues which you've highlighted. Um, So I guess, you know, um, respect all the work you're doing. um, Thank you. And, and, and if you don't mind just quickly, um, the last point I would ask you would be just um, if you could highlight any thoughts you have about that gap that you're speaking about um, that exists between like perhaps how people understand Canadian foreign policy to be and what the reality is and, and why it's important for us to, to all think critically about that um, misunderstanding or lack of information. Um, It seems in a lot of ways it's probably tied to the fact that Canada has not fully addressed its own colonial reality um, internally. Um, But there's a lot to talk about. But I'm just wondering um, if you could underline a bit more um, that point and why it's important to address that gap.
1: Yeah, so, I mean... This is a good question. You know, how does mythology get built up to a place where there's that big of a disconnect um, mm-hmm. between what we say, what, what, what we think of as being our foreign policy um, and what it actually is, yeah. right? Which is in large part support for empire um, and advancing corporate interests uh, abroad. Okay. Um, And I think a lot of that is just just history right and the kind of like a lack of historical memory um, and a lack of a lack of historical memory so part of what we're trying to do is uh, we actually have a foreign policy wiki where people can go and kind of look at um, important moments and, and historical moments in Canadian foreign policy history um, and when we actually look at our at our foreign policy in this kind of meaningful way in a timeline, it actually is coherent. You know, it does make sense. But I think that we have, I mean, the, the issue is so broad. I mean, I think a huge part of it is a lack of interest um, in in sort of what Canada is doing abroad, which. Um, you know, we don't have we don't have eyes on the ground in the same way that we do for our domestic policies. And so there's just a lot more that Canada can get away with. Right. Like if we think about uh, what can what our government is does here in Canada um, to our First Nations people, to people of color, um, you know, to poor people and on and on. Think about what they're willing and capable of doing uh, abroad where we can't see it. Um, where we, you know, where we have less of a say—that's happening in our name. So I think that's part of it, right? Is that the domestic policy is isn't quite the same as the as the foreign policy, right? Our foreign policy can can be uglier because uh, we have we just we just have less access to information, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think that there is a problem of, do- of documentation, uh, critical mm-hmm. documentation, and I think that that's uh, that's an issue of, of, of the, it's the it's the media right um we have a media that are unwilling to challenge dominant narratives mm. and um we have a narrative about what Canada's role is in the world <laughs> and that narrative is repeated and, and 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 cannot be seen as anything different um, and the dots are not connected by the media if something is happening it's not understood as systemic it's seen as uh you know, uh, kind of a one-off sort of thing, um, and so I, I would say I'd say that when those those three things come together, kind of like lack of understanding of of, of our history, um, a lack of uh, a lack of opportunities for education because we're just not seeing these things covered in the media, which is part of why we took. Um, the opportunity, the horse race of the United Nations Security Council, to force the discussion into the media scape, right? To just like wedge open a little bit of space um, for for the question, even um, mm-hmm. about our, our foreign policy. So, I just, and I also think that I think that the time that we're in, right? With COVID, we have a global climate crisis. Um, a spirit of internationalism is just required. Mm-hmm. It's just is just so necessary for us yeah. to overcome these massive threats, including the threat of, of nuclear weapons. Um, and so, you know, I I just really I just would really like to encourage people to see it to see it as not only as being like a good global citizen um, and doing the right thing to pay attention to and criticize and act, you know. Uh, for a better Canadian foreign policy, but it's really in our own interests to do so. Um, because if, if we're seen uh, on the world stage as this sort of climate criminal, um, foreign policy criminal, it's going to be very diff- difficult for us to work with, with, other co- with other countries and with the world to overcome all of these crises that we're facing.
0: Bianca Mugeni, thanks for talking today for this interview series that we've been working on together uh, for the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Um, and uh, maybe just quickly the, the website uh, for people who might be interested.
1: Yep, so you can find out about the work that we're doing at www.foreignpolicy.ca. That's foreignpolicy.ca.
0: That was a conversation with Bianca Mugeni. Uh, who is with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute? I've been working on a collaborative series of interviews with that project. You can find more information about the group at foreignpolicy.ca. Thank you to Bianca for being on Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, in Montreal. It is the 9th of March, uh, 2021. Uh, it's still cold here, but it is March, and uh, happy to share another podcast with you. Um, I wanted to now go to a piece of music uh, that a friend of mine released, um, who released this piece in the context of International Women's Day 2021. The artist is Nadine Altunji. Tunji. I'll just read what uh, Nadine uh, wrote uh, about this piece of music that we're going to be hearing, and it gives some context. Masha de Flores is a passionate tribute to all the women of South America and around the world who stand up to demand justice, freedom from violence, and equal rights for women. The song and accompanying video by Nadine are being released uh, yesterday, that was on International Women's Day, to bring attention to the plight of women in Peru, specifically. And um, the track was aiming to raise funds for Mantae, which is a non-profit organization in Peru that supports young mothers. And I'm really happy to share this uh, beautiful piece uh, here on Free City Radio.
2: Un para siempre Que comenzó en el vientre Protectoras de lo eterno Inicio de la vida Débiles y frágiles Así nos querían Para cuidarlas Amarlas Protegerlas Así nos decían, y hoy, entre la multitud, una a una, va cayendo. Como la lluvia en enero, silenciosas están fluyendo. Ahora, los vientres duelen, el parto atemoriza. Y amar, es como buscar a la muerte. Caminamos tanto tiempo mirando sus espaldas, como si ese fuera el límite del horizonte. Para protegerlas, decían. Porque las amamos, fingían. Tratadas como flores solo al inicio, portadas para su florero. Un amor deshonesto. Y ahora estamos todas, sacando las espinas, gritando temblorosas, en valentía infundadas. La sangre nos baña todos los días. De dolor se empapan las hermanas. Gritamos alto, cada vez más alto, pero solo el viento nos escucha. Nuestros caminos parecen distanciados, pero no es lo que buscamos. No queremos caminar a vuestro lado. Queremos caminar con ustedes. La lucha está empezando y las primeras van cayendo. Gotas de lluvia. Ellas empezarán los bulliciosos ríos hasta ser gigantescos mares. La bravura emerge de nuestras bocas, bocas que ya no callan, que gritan desesperadas. Queremos que amar no duela, que hablar no atemorice, que abrazar sea lo diario, sin sangrar al siguiente día.
0: That was a piece of music uh, for International Women's Day by a friend of mine named Nadine Altajuni, uh, who did this piece um, to support a women's organization in Peru uh, called Mantai. Uh, you can find for more information about them um, at mantay.org. And the artist Nadine recorded a short monologue about this piece, uh, her work. Uh, That was released yesterday on International Women's Day 2021. So here's Nadine in her own words.
3: In 2018, I had the opportunity to travel in Ecuador and Peru, thanks to a Canada Council research grant. The last city I was in was Cusco, and I had the chance to meet Marcia Castro Gamara, an amazing poet. When I met her, I told her about my project, and ideas started flowing for concepts of songs. We brainstormed subjects that mattered to us and shared our perspective on the world and its problems. Marcia shared with me that the news was getting worse every day in Cusco. There were more and more cases of women who died at the hands of their husband or partners. Some of them were even pregnant. I was filled with so much sadness and anger. How can this still be happening today? Many similar stories brought women from all over the world to march in the streets and protest violence against women. A few weeks after our discussions, I met Marcia for coffee and she showed me a powerful piece she wrote, inspired by her own story and the women's march against violence. When I heard it, it inspired me to include it and perform it as a spoken word piece on my album. I composed the guitar parts, Mark Allen Haynes co-arranged and co-produced the music. Then we wanted to take the idea further. We wanted to make a video and reach more people. The video for Marcia de Flores was filmed and compiled, edited by Victorine Santilli. The video's imagery includes photographs documenting the Cusco protests, images taken from the feminist activist group Genero Rebelde, and video footage shot by the director Victorine Santé in Canada, Chad, and Haiti. We chose to release this video on Women's Day in honor of our sisters, mothers, and daughters, and our collective struggle for equality and freedom. Violence against women in any form needs to end. I would also like to mention that the single Marcha de Flores is available on Bandcamp at nadinealtungy.bandcamp.com and that all Bandcamp proceeds for this song will go to the NPO Mantai located in Cusco. This non organization offers shelter to young mothers aged 14 to 18 who in most, ca- most cases were sexually abused. If you would like to know more about how this organization helps this, these mothers Um, you can visit www.mentai.org. Thank you very much, Stefan, for inviting me on your show and to give me a chance to speak to you about my project. If you are interested to learn more about my upcoming album, The Stories That Tie Us to Trees, you can visit my website at nadinealtungy.com. Thank you so much and have a (laughs) great day.
0: This is Free City Radio. It's the 31st edition. It is Tuesday the 9th of March. And uh, continuing on with the broadcast, I wanted to play an excerpt of a conversation that I had with Atayef al-Wazir, who is a women's rights activist from Yemen, who has been articulating and campaigning uh, to bring attention to uh, the human rights situation in Yemen in relation to um, Saudi Arabia government-led military campaign that has really had a huge impact on the health, well-being, and the rights of women in Saudi Arabia. I spoke with Atayef al-Wazir during an event on human rights in Yemen that I organized with Alternatives, uh, which is an organization here in Montreal. Um, and uh, we heard about different uh, efforts that are taking place to highlight Uh, human rights in Yemen. Uh, So I'll play this um, exchange I had with Atayev about her work in support of the rights of women in Yemen.
4: Hi everyone, Um, thank you for having me. A little bit about myself, so uh, Atayif is plural for um, Taif, which actually means colors of the rainbow or um, spectra, and so I find that I try to live kind of by that and uh, look At the world in its various diverse uh, nature, or I I try to at least. And I'm a daughter of a historian. And so I've understood the importance of memory and history ever since I was young. And now, as an adult and as a researcher and writer, I focus um, these days on documentation, on the importance of documentation and storytelling as a form of resistance. And especially because I'm now outside of Yemen, Um, that's what I feel I could do for um, Yemen, I guess, and for people uh, in the country. Um, and because I believe that um, the personal is political, I, th- I I think I try to start with myself. And so I really started with the process of documenting my family history as a part of the collective history. And and the stories of the women in my family, like, because I found that that was kind of neglected um, there was a lot of documentation of the men in the, in the family. And, and with the war, of course, um, I think that's very, very important to, to, for our collection um, to document everything that is happening. Uh, and, and the war impacts, of course, everybody, right? Uh, not just women, but women are impacted in a more in a disproportionate way, I would say, women and girls. And whether it's the systematic uh, rape that's happening, or the displacement um, that's impacting uh, women, um, uh, and I, I, or the, or the loss of land because a lot of uh, a lot of the women work as farmers and their their livelihoods are impacted, of course, by the war. Uh, and so, when we document these stories, um, we also I, I try to do also this sort sort of mentorship and helping helping women tell their own story. So I'm not writing it on their behalf, but you you tell us, you tell me your story and how best to to share that story. And, and from that, we see that, you know, women are not one block. There's so many different stories and there are and different ways that the war is impacting women. Um, I can continue, but let me stop here. And if you have any um, I don't know if I should continue, I give you examples. Well,
0: or... well yeah, please do. I, I remember when we first talked, uh, it was actually, um, I believe that you were in Sana'a um, when I called you and uh, you had you were talking about very uh, technical impacts. I mean, and and also uh, the impacts of the war on, on people's ability to survive in terms of access to food and water, but also you were talking at the time, and I believe this was in 2015, and it also illustrates how how long uh, the war on Yemen has been happening, the impacts on society, but the ways that particularly women have been working to hold society together in such a um, violent context. Um, so yeah, if you could maybe talk beyond the headlines of the work that, uh, Women on a on a local level, but also community organizations, have been doing to try to hold up and sustain uh, community and support and solidarity in in the impossible context. It it would seem.
4: Right. Um, I think that, that there is a diverse diversity of how women are reacting to this, and and I think it's important to say that there are some women who are supporting the war machine, right, and who are engaged in in the world but there are a lot of other women who are engaged in nonviolent disobedience and i think let's say take mothers for example there just t- just to see a mother a malnourished mother who has an infant who is say 2 months old 3 months old needs milk and there is nothing that she can offer because she is she herself is malnourished and she gives everything from her body, everything she has to this baby, has to watch this baby turn into skeleton basically. And, and, and for me, you know, I have, I have two children and I have a seven month old that I'm still, still breastfeeding. And every time I do, I think, wow, I am so blessed that I have this milk. And it's these little things that women have to bear on a daily basis, seeing, deciding which child will live sometimes. You have to decide, should I, I have a little bit of money do I buy formula for one baby or do I take this child to the hospital, for example? Um, women who stand in line for hours just to get water. You know, it's hours. You, you walk for a long time and then you wait and wait and wait for a truck to get water. Um, you know, you have women, of course, who, who um, are mediating disputes. There's only women who mediate disputes locally and... and, and hold communities together that way. And I find that a lot of times the emotional toll of the war lies a lot on women. So many of the women have to take care emotionally of everyone around them. And that, that's a heavy burden to bear. Um, and especially when you don't have assistance around you and you don't have um, you know, the mental health services to support you with that. That's a lot to ask, uh, but that's, that's something women are taking on and of course, they're also taking on, unfortunately, the heavy burden of, of domestic violence, you know, um, and, and that happens uh, uh, too often. Um, and, and despite all of these, I think you see, you still see women um, at the forefront of trying to mend these broken hearts. So women writing poetry to bring people together, women... Um, uh, you know, uh, going to people's houses and trying to just giving, you know, someone cooks and then they just deliver it to different um, neighbors, you know, uh, sharing food together, sharing the little salary if they ever get paid, um, you know, just to keep life afloat. Um, And I think all of these stories have to be documented because if we only document um, all the violence that happens, but we don't document all the way people uh, cope when life is uh, terrible. We 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 not, we really rob people of their agency, uh, and there are of um, resistance and of coping mechanisms um, that that should be highlighted. I would say.
0: Well, uh, you've uh, highlighted. Uh, very specific organizations that have technically done work on the ground in Sana'a, but also beyond in Yemen to uh, support um, communities impacted by the war. You have also uh, helped start support Yemen. Can you give us some specifics as to organizational efforts that you feel people should pay attention to and also explain a bit why... um, the war um, has been shaped by complicity on the part of Western governments. Um, I know there's two questions in there, um, but thank you.
4: Sure. Uh, let me let me answer. I guess the the first part of the question. Um, I think it's important to, for example, when if we talked about um, support Yemen or any collectives that are trying to tell stories of of um, of groups that we don't really hear about too often, um, or people. Uh, I think there is, that's really important because in the mainstream media we often don't hear nuance, you know. People are, are just um, trapped in different identity boxes and we don't really hear how different struggles of, uh, or different issues of social justice intersect and they work together. Uh, and, and also that of what all these people are doing. And so for example, for Support Yemen, that was one of the goals is to highlight the stories that are untold through video, um, through writing op-eds. Um, and it was often in English to try to reach international um, media, I guess. Um, and, and now more than ever, you see a lot of that in Yemen, um, a lot of people trying to use uh, social media or trying to use video, um, the arts, to share um, different parts of Yemen and to give people kind of the 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 way to express how they feel. So you had these, for example, um, initiatives to give people um, just small notebooks, just write how you feel, just you know, kind of like a diary. And in that way, we, we get a big a better picture of different people in different contexts and just their daily struggles. And in, uh, and and the and the idea is to uh, remove basically what's happening every day from ju- just, okay, uh, you know, 70,000 people, you know, are wounded or all these numbers that are floating around. And I don't think people connect with numbers. They connect with the story of Aisha. They connect with the story of, you know, or uh, of, uh, Aziza or people, they connect with people. They don't necessarily connect with numbers. And I think that's why it's really important to, to highlight stories uh, and letting people speak for themselves way, I think the, import, that's, uh, the importance of solidarity, international solidarity, is key also here. Uh, and I don't mean um, feeling bad for people or showing pity or charity. I, I mean solidarity in the sense where groups internationally recognize that, that what's happening in Yemen is an issue of justice, uh, and it's an issue of justice that impacts them as much as it impacts Yemenis. Because, and I can, I guess, go to the second part of the question, if we're looking at, for example, the countries of the, G, the G7 group, for example, six out of them uh, have, have sold numerous amounts of um, arms and still selling uh, some of them uh, arms to Saudi Arabia, and that makes them, you know, directly uh complicit in the in the war in Yemen because it's being used in in the country and there are numerous documentations of of the war coalition um, uh, uh, attack or the bombings that have destroyed hospitals um, bridges factories uh, just civilian infrastructure and I'm not saying that locally we don't have uh, in Yemen our own local uh, dynamics, um, or uh, local conflicts, of course, there are. But if, I, but, but if we're speaking about, say, in the role of the international community or international um, alliance, I guess, uh, in this war, there is definitely. A, a, it is a major contributing factor in fueling and sustaining the war. And and just if we speak about hospitals, you know, it's. Um, I'll give you an example. My my uncle had a brain stroke last week, uh, and. So they took him to the hospital immediately. And my cousin, who is a doctor, wanted to get him out of the hospital as soon as he could. Uh, and the reason, part of the reason is that, of course, hospitals are filled with diseases and you know nobody likes to be in a hospital anywhere. But, but, it, but also hospitals are barely functioning. And even before the war, we, um, there were no ventilators or oxygen um, cylinders. And that's that's worse now, of course, with COVID. And we have electricity cuts. And when electricity cuts, hospitals need generators, but generators need fuel, and there's a fuel shortage. And so sometimes, you know, the facilities just won't work. Uh, and people who will need dialysis, like my aunt, sometimes she goes to the hospital, she can't get dialysis. Uh, and, and food prices are impacted, of course, by uh, fuel prices and making them, you know, even more expensive. Uh, but the other reason my cousin wanted my uncle out of the hospital as soon as possible is that hospitals are, t- are targets of bombs. Uh, and more than 70 health facilities, I think, have been bombed since 2015. Uh, and so I mean, I, I can just imagine, you know, here, I'm living in Brussels right now. And yeah, I'm, I worry if I go to the hospital because of COVID and I have my mask and make sure. But I'm not worried that a bomb is also going to hit me. Um, and you know, on average, the coalition has bombed Yemen twelve times a day. That's can you can you imagine just every single day and expecting these these bombs anywhere? And so yes, of course, um, these countries are, are complicit. And and I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it, it it has to do with profits. When we value profits over people uh, or not we when governments value profits over people uh this is what happens and the problem is the arms industry is quite secretive and opaque with with the information and arms manufacturers bankroll lobbyists and they have a disproportionate um influence you know over governments and so the actions of campaigners uh out in these, specifically in these countries, is of utmost importance because it brings to light what governments want to hide. Um, and it, and it, you know, it does help um, move things towards the right place. You know? uh, so, yeah, for example, Germany and Italy recently banned or halted the arms because of all the all the campaigns, I would say.
0: So uh, you had mentioned the coalition, so I just want to clarify um, that, I mean, for anybody listening, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, a coalition led by the government of Saudi Arabia uh, with participation um, of the United Arab Emirates. And this is uh, also a coalition that has had some political support from um, the United States, of course. So can, can you detail a bit more why... Um, understanding that quote-unquote coalition as a force of violence, uh, can can you share a bit more um, how that plays out?
4: Sorry, can you p- repeat the question? I cut off.
0: No problem. Uh, just to share a bit more of context to understand why the coalition led by the government of Saudi Arabia in Yemen is a force of violence.
4: Yeah, I mean... When you have a a coalition, uh, even the word coalition I don't like because coalition has like a positive connotation, but uh, but that's you know that's what the, they're called. But the, the, the when the coalition started um, now almost six years ago in March, um, they began heavy heavy bombings, and there have been numerous you know um, documentation since now almost six years, uh, that these bombings have not been targeted at specific, um, um, you know, specific places, but they've actually killed and murdered so many innocent civilians and have targeted uh, civilian infrastructures in in a way that almost seems deliberate. Um, and, And the number of bridges, for example, that have been bombed, the number of factories uh, wheat factories, egg factories, and uh, you know there was a joke back in the day that Yemeni joke that said, um, "Do these pilots have a bombing list or a grocery list? Because they're bombing all these um, places that need, you know, that that uh, food, we, uh, eggs, wheat, um, and and in a place where um, where poverty was already high, uh, even before the war." This is really, this has caused immense, um, uh, immense destruction and a humanitarian disaster. And then on top of that, you have the blockade. Uh, blockade that's blocking the, essentially the country and, uh, uh, and anything, any imports from, from entering. Uh, and in a country that relies 80% of it uh, on, on imports for, for basic food, this is, this is total, this is a deliberate method of starvation and collective punishment. And so when we say Yemen is starving you know immediately say oh Yemenis are starving It for the average person you would think oh there is maybe a natural disaster that's causing people to starve but that's not the case it's a deliberate man-made starvation and so we should actually say Yemenis are being starved not they're not just starving uh, and they're being deliberately you know starved and and this this is essentially uh, can be linked uh, to the international coalition sustaining this, um, and and using violence as a method instead of trying to, uh, you know, use mediation, diplomacy, um, ways to to uh, end this this conflict.
0: That was Atayef al-Wazir, uh, who is a Yemeni human rights activist. Uh, she's one of the founders of Support Yemen. I'd really encourage you to uh, check out that organization. They've done very incredible work to raise awareness and to shine light on the devastating human rights situation in Yemen today, which really is not getting the attention that uh, it deserves and it, that it needs urgently. Following up from that, um, I wanted to play a piece of music that I worked on uh, with a friend of mine, Sam Shalabi, uh, who plays Oud. And I play piano, um, staying in the region. Uh, This is a piece called Elephantine, which is from our album Flying Street. was a collaboration that i worked on with sam chalabi uh, who is playing oud, and i'm playing piano it's from our album flying street and the track is called elephantine thank you so much for uh listening to the 32nd edition of free city radio i'm your host stefan Christoph in montreal it is tuesday the 9th of march uh, we uh share a new episode with you uh every tuesday um If you have any feedback or ideas about the podcast, please send me an email. I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe. We are um, at Free City Radio. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Also, please give us a rating if you like what you're hearing. And tell some friends. Um, We'll be back next week. And thanks for tuning in. I'm going to go to a piece of music that was re- recently released by an uh, excellent label in Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, called Giraffe Tapes. Um, they recently made a beautiful mix for Free City Radio. You can find that on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash Free City Radio. Thank you to Giraffe Tapes for working on this uh, mix in collaboration uh, with Free City Radio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next Tuesday. Take care.